Okay, I hope this works. Please, 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 please. Please state the nature of the mathematical inquiry. Okay. What do you know about the mathematics involved in creating vibrating acoustic waves through a transmission medium, such as the air, between approximately 20 hertz and 20 kilohertz, in order to elicit a perception in the human brain that can simultaneously act as a denotion of the passage of time, as well as indicating a transition to the next division of a broadcast? And, more importantly, are you able to facilitate the aforementioned resonances? A request at that level of fidelity was not anticipated from the current subject. Initiating higher function matrices. Calculating. Yeah, I mean, it took me three Wikipedia articles to come up with... Hang on, are you calling me... Calculating. (sighs) Fine. Clarification. Your inquiry related to my ability to reproduce the interstitial auditory components applied to the end product of the host's activities. Yes, yeah. Maybe. See, okay, here's what happened. Mikey left me alone to assemble the show this week, and, well, I got hungry, so I went off and made a snack, and then I left it on top the sweepers, and then I went to refill my water bottle, and when I got back, I found that Cinder had eaten most of the sweepers and the sandwich that I made. I mean, I didn't even know cats liked Marmite. Improper forethought in your activities fails to constitute an emergency requiring my intervention. Okay, well, let me put it like this then. If I don't get this show out, then there's a chance that the entire production may close, which will mean we'd need to decommission everything in this guild hall, including your grand mechanicalness. Given that my continued operation is contingent on this endeavour, I shall provide assistance. Oh, thank Bella. Okay, so, uh, how do we make a sweeper? The broadcast will now commence. That's it? Like, shouldn't there be background music and the whole, like, fourth airlingus and it is not hot, or whatever that guy says. You know, all that stuff. Such embellishments are inefficient. The broadcast begins presently. Welcome, brave adventurers, to Heroes Rise. I'm Ostron, and joining us on our quest this evening are two of the wisest adventurers in the land. I'm Ryu. And I'm Lennon. And this is the 217th entry into our chronicle, recorded on Saturday, July 9th, and released Wednesday, July 13th, over at HeroesRisePodcast.com. So, Lennon, what's in store for our brave adventurers this week? Well, in this week's Adventures Pack, Ryu shows us her new plaid hat. Wait, is that a mouse in there? Anyway, next we check out some D&D news as we're joined by Indigo Spectre to discuss all things Adventurers League, from the very basics of what even is an Adventurers League, through to the latest changes, and we answer your hot Adventurers League questions. After that we take a short rest and head into the Gnomish Workshop to analyse the attack, before finally heading into the Scrying Pool to see what you all have to say. That takes care of the introductions, so let's take a look at what's in our Adventurers Packs. Now that the introduction is complete, Ryu will present to us an app, book, or other item that she believes will help fellow adventurers and dungeon masters. I've mentioned Hero Kids to you guys before, and we've also talked about Space Kids and its eventual release uh, as ways to ease younger children into tabletop RPGs. Well, as I'm sure most of our listeners have already discovered, Getting other people, and especially younger children, but also other people who are maybe more skeptical about our chosen hobby, into roleplay might be done a little bit more gently by introducing it with a board game rather than throwing them into a full RPG like D&D or Pathfinder and bombarding them with rules. So that being said, out of all the games that my family has, and despite introducing my kiddos to the Hero Kids system a while back, The one game that they constantly, without fail, ask to play every single game day is a board game from Plat Hat Games called Mice and Mystics. I won't go full in on the gameplay since that's not what our show's about, but I do want to get it out of the way first that for those of you who are not interested in using the game as a roleplay introduction, that it does come with 22 fairly detailed minis of the hero mouse characters. Uh, There are six of those, by the way, and they basically boil down to the healer, ranger, rogue, spellcaster, fighter, and barbarian. And then there are enemy rat warriors, spiders, centipedes, and cockroaches. Now, depending on where you pick up the base game, 
The price ranges between $60 and $75, which puts the price per mini to about $3.41 on the highest level, which really isn't bad. It's not the best price that it could be, but it's not bad at all. And the centipede, cockroach, and spider minis are also system agnostic. And the hero mice and enemy rats can also be used in many tabletop RPG systems and worlds, such as the Greenwold setting from Dungeon in a Box that I've talked about before. They have a mousekin species in that setting. The only possible issue that I could see with using the rat and mouse minis in a different game is that they are the same size as your typical hero character and therefore they won't be to scale in a party where their ancestry is considered small or tiny in size. Now that that's out of the way, going back to introducing your kids and family to RPGs using the game, the game rules themselves are fairly straightforward and easy to learn. I would say they are definitely more difficult to master than Hero Kids rules, but really not by much. And that being said though, this game is hard. Like, legitimately difficult to make it through one of the 11 base game chapters without party wiping. So we've had to modify the rules some in an effort to keep it engaging and not too frustrating for our littles, but even then, it's difficult to get through without dying. And that's another reason that I like it for getting people ready for the full TTRPG experience. It's easy to pick up, but it's difficult to win, which forces the players to think tactically. Now, there are certainly lots of board games that could be considered as an introduction to role-playing combat tactics, such as Korra Quest or Gloomhaven, and I would say that Mice and Mystics is a good middle ground between the two, especially for younger players. It has a fully cohesive storyline, but unlike Korra Quest, the story is completely continuous and it's not simply scenario-based. And it requires some fairly competent team tactics to actually make it out of the story alive, like I was saying before. But unlike Gloomhaven, it's not so complicated that it needs an 82-page rulebook to figure out gameplay. And like I said, my kids love this game. Now, the story concept might be a lot of the reason for that, uh, what with the brave prince and his followers being turned into mice and still having to save their kingdom, but I've noticed that they are not only being more invested in the story, but they're also gaining a better grasp on teamwork and character synergies that they just weren't cultivating playing Hero Kids. And seeing how much they love it, and how much it has improved their critical thinking and problem-solving skills and teamwork, I am really looking forward to the day that I can actually introduce them to a full tabletop RPG gaming experience. So I initially thought Mice and Mystics was a TTRPG system. So one, thanks for correcting me on that, because I genuinely wasn't aware it was a board game. Two, a question that I've got on it is, it says in sort of reading the back of the box about making, uh, like taking on the roles and it's a cooperative game that you play and it's about sort of making the stories. Is there much, what's the word I'm looking for here? Like, I guess what I'm trying to actually ask is how deep does the role play go in this? The role play is more along the lines of if you want to actually add it to the characters. Sure. So each of the characters already has their own personality and it's more along the lines of, I'm trying to get my kids to ask, what would this character do in this situation instead of what would I do? And a lot of it, like I said, has to do with the character synergies and how well they work with each other. And my kids have actually gotten fairly good at role-playing their, their little mice. And even though, even though the actual role-play there is not required for the game, we've been cultivating it with our kids and helping them to get more into it, get more comfortable with it. And that's, that's not something that happened with Hero Kids at all. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, I was just thinking because obviously the sort of creature cards that you get are like Filch the Scamp and Lily the Archer and Tilda the Healer. And so obviously I, I'm sort of picking up on the gamification side of it, but I was wondering more on the, like I said, like the, the, the non-mechanical parts of the game. Particularly because, like you were saying, with D&D, &D, 
yes, there are lots of rules based around combat and things like that, but there is obviously a heck of a lot of roleplay involved as well. So, Yeah, so are there any, like, skill or social puzzles as part of the gameplay, or is it mostly combat? I wouldn't say that there are puzzles, necessarily. There are things that you need to accomplish as a team, though, and especially if you're playing rules as written, getting those things accomplished before another encounter happens is very difficult. So it it takes a lot of thought to be able to do it efficiently, and you really do need a good set of players around the table who work well together to be able to get it done efficiently if you're not playing with modified rules like my family does. Also, I like that you said that it was a particularly tough adventure to go through, which I feel that is prepping them for Wizards of the Coast level one modules. Right? Yeah, yeah. Or just playing with Ryu as a DM. Right. <laughs> so uh, that's another thing about this. It there's, there's not really a DM necessarily, but every player who is being attacked at the time, uh, another player at the table is doing the attacking on behalf of the enemies on the board. So they're also having to be like, oh, well, how would the enemy react? And not just, I'm just going to have this particular enemy just sit here because I don't want them to shoot an arrow at my sister or something, which which did happen at our table once. And I was like, no, you actually have to try to attack one of them. Right, because in this moment, you are not you. You are yeah. the enemy. And how would they react and things? Yeah. So that also gives them a taste of that. One thing I do want to say, and, and this has this has nothing to do with D&D necessarily, but it does kind of have to do with the role play. I don't know what it is about my family, but if you look on the box, it says that this game takes... 60 to 90 minutes to play. We play one chapter at a time and we are literally sitting at that table for at least three hours, usually four. Most of the board games I'm familiar with don't include setup and breakdown in their time estimates. Yeah. And they assume that everyone is, you know, fully competent with the rules and there are no questions or pauses or anything. Right. That does, that estimate being under doesn't really surprise me. Right, and if you're dealing with having to solve puzzles efficiently, then the discussion around how best to go about solving that can take like 20 minutes in its own right. At least some of the games that I've played over this recent weekend have had similar levels of out-of-game discussion. I will say I'm looking through, there's a couple of different sites where this game is presented, and the one I'm looking at has an extensive gallery of pictures and the miniatures are are good uh they're they're detailed enough that if you're a good painter you can do some highlighting and shading and washes and make them look really good but they're also the kind of models where you can go very bare bones with the painting at beginner levels and it's still very easy to separate out details and make them look good even if you aren't going into an extreme amount of detail links to mice and mystics can be found in our show notes but is there something that's an absolute must-have at your tables found a cool app book or other item you'd like to share with other adventurers and dungeon masters if so let us know about it on social media at heroes rise dnd or by emailing sendingstone at heroesrisepodcast.com but for now let's check out some dnd news the following segment discusses the most recent topical events involving the tabletop role-playing game Dungeons & Dragons and ancillary resources thereof. So, from one introduction to D&D to what is actually another introduction to D&D for a lot of people, the D&D Adventurers League is a topic that comes up sometimes on this show, particularly when they do big announcements usually related to book releases, and some people even got their first taste of D&D in 5th edition through the Adventurers League. 
But a lot of people still don't understand what the Adventurers League is, how it functions, why you would even want to partake in it, and ultimately what separates it from regular D&D. So in a bit of a mix-up on the usual format, we were initially going to report on the changes, but then we asked around our audience to see if they had any questions, and one of the first questions that we got is, what even is the Adventurers League? So I feel that's a really good place to start, and in order to tell us exactly what the Adventurers League is, we have dragged up our member of the Conjuration Cabal, previously known as our Adventurers League correspondent, Indigo Spectre. Say hello to the lovely people, Indigo. Hello to the lovely people, Indigo. Perfect. This is why we hired you. So let's uh, let's start at the beginning. Yeah, the, the question from our listeners is, what even is the Adventurers League? Well, to quote Dungeons & Dragons, Wizards of the Coast, and the Adventurers League directly, the D&D Adventures League is an ongoing official campaign for Dungeons & Dragons. It uses the 5th edition Dra- Dungeons & Dragons rules, and it features the Forgotten Realm setting. So, what that means is this is a ongoing world event that players can join or leave as they see fit, can occur anywhere, and it's just a codified rule set so that you don't have to walk in and negotiate with the dungeon master in order to build a character and join a world and actually sit down and play. Every All of the back-end pieces are in the Adventures League rule set, and so from there everyone sits down with a baseline the same, and you can play pre-made adventures that have been approved and they claim balanced, but this is D&D, so you know how far that goes. Right. Right, yeah. So this is something that is um, a lot more structured than your traditional uh, kitchen table D&D. Yes, with the interesting piece there that you can play Adventures League games around your kitchen table, um, and they count as Adventures League games for advancement and maintaining your characters if you want to. It's just that the basic rule set are uniform across. And as I understand it, one of the advantages of the Adventurers League over, uh, quote, kitchen table D&D is that because it has a structure and you have to, and please obviously correct me if I'm wrong on this, you have to sort of log what your character does and gains over the course of the event with the official D&D Adventurers League website. But because your character is sort of known to Wizards of the Coast, it means that you can also take this character and drop it into any Adventurers League game. So if I, say, went to a convention like Gen Con and there was an Adventurers League game and I've already played in Adventurers League games, I can take my uh, Space Dragon Barbarian or whatever and just throw him in there. Yes, there is quite a bit of the honor system going on um, because you don't have to log it online. You can log it on paper. Um, And when you're logging it online, it doesn't go through any sort of approval process. But at the same time, if you are fudging the numbers, it's either going to be very obvious and the DM you're now playing with will ask you to leave, or you've only hurt yourself. So there's, it doesn't, there's no wizard's approval on every single time you log something, but it is a log sheet so that you can maintain your character and keep them AL legal without having to try to remember everything that you earned or didn't earn or where you were or which adventure you played. It's more of a note sheet rather than, oh, this is proof that I did the thing. Gotcha. And how long have you been playing in the D&D Adventurers League? And is that as a player, a DM, a mix of everything? Like, give us us your Adventurers League backstory. So with me, I've been playing, well, in the Adventurers League before it was Adventurers League. Um, So 4th edition had, well, even 3rd edition had a group play organized thing that I was in. And then 4th edition had their own. And then 5th edition, it became Adventurers League uh, with basically the same premise, but very different rule sets as fit the, um, the edition that, we're, that, that we were playing. But um, I've been doing that since, oh, back in the 2000s sometime back then. <laughs> right. And correct me if I'm wrong, because I only hear sort of secondhand tales throughout the internet as I've been going around, but... This isn't the same system as the RPGA, which was the third edition version, 
um, which sort of carried through into fourth, is it? it? Like, this was sort of reset for fifth edition. Yes, they took a lot of the feedback that they had gotten from both of those previous editions. Fourth edition had a different name as well, but then it became Adventurers League for fifth edition, and they did, in fact, take the various feedback from the pain points of those and try to improve things for Adventurers League. But I would say that even in the last two years, Adventures League has improved significantly, partly due to having to play uh, remotely for the past couple of years. Right. So if I wanted to get started in Adventures League as a regular, quote, regular D&D player, how would I go about doing that? You would just go to the D&D Adventures League website, download the um, player's guide, which is a two-page guide, read through that, make a character or use a pregen, and show up to an event that is in your local area using the store locator from the Adventures League website as well. So it's that simple, basically. Create a character and off you go. It really is that mm-hmm. simple. Yep. You just walk into a place where a where an open um, Adventures League event is happening, which for most um, friendly local gaming stores tend to happen about once a week, um, just typically. There are also a lot of online events you can join through Roll20 or Fantasy Grounds or various other tabletop, digital tabletop spaces. Right. And you also said earlier that it was set in the Forgotten Realms, but as, as a bit of an Eberron fan, I definitely remember that there was an Eberron season. Is that something that's still ongoing, or is it has it now reverted entirely to within the Forgotten Realms setting? Well, the good thing about that is the Eberron wasn't actually its own season. It is a parallel uh, adventure path that's running. Um, so there's actually mm-hmm. currently Eberron and... Ravenloft um, that are currently running and will be running. Um, You can't port a character over from one to the other and back and forth and back and forth, but um, you can have three separate characters running one in each of these different types of areas as much as you want. So the campaigns are split up into seasons, right? Yes, in a sense. Are there any ongoing games that are from previous seasons still? Yes, that would actually depend on the dungeon master running the game. So um, the DM gets to choose what adventure they run. There is a green list of adventures that are permissible under the current season, which we are currently in season 11, moving into season 12 soon. And they pick from one of those adventures, whether it's a small adventure or a hardcover. And then you join that game that the DM chooses to run. But you're still playing in that season's curated adventures. You can't pull in an adventure from a previous season. There are approved adventures from previous seasons on the current season list. Okay, but as far as everything else, is it like anybody who wants to get into Adventurers League now has kind of missed out on some of the previous ones? On some of the smaller adventures, yes. Um, And those tend to be the ones that were written for and presented at particular cons. Okay, that makes sense. But, for example, I'm guessing most of the large hardcover adventures that are official are still sort of perpetually in the green zone for adventures. Yes, any of the hardcover adventures for 5th edition, including the starter set and the essentials kit, are all green listed. Alright, so... When you first start playing in Adventurers League, do you always have to start at level one, or can you pop into any of the higher level adventures? Something they started last season is you can pop in at either level one or at level five. You you have to pop okay. into a game that's occurring at the level that you are, but because of all the things that happened with the world and finding games became a whole nother mess, right. um, they opened it up to be, if you can only find tier two games, levels five through 10, or five through nine rather, you can start at level five. And there are some rules that they built around that about what type of magic items you have, what your experience level is, things like that. So you can start at level five so that everybody has a game to find if they want one. So just talking about the magic items there, I think this actually got changed a long time ago, but this does tie in with a listener question that we had, um, which is how... Do you go about the distribution or the acquiring 
of magic items because i know once upon a time it was effectively done with points and you sort of bought it between sessions and then they scrapped that and brought in another system so where are we now and obviously if it is changing for season 12 uh tell us you know how it's going to be changing it's not changing from season 11 to season 12 but it did change i believe the change to this actually occurred back when season 10 started um back in 2020 for obvious reasons um with magic items, you have a limited number of magic items per tier. And tier of play is 1 through 4, 5 through 10, 11 through 16, and 17 through 20. Um, and so in first tier, levels 1 through 4, you get one uncommon magic item that you can have on your character to use. You can have five common magic items, and you can have five consumables. Um, the source of these are typically the adventures themselves. The adventures are written with magic items in them, um, particularly consumables or common magic items. If you look in the approved list of magic items, which according to Adventures League is the Dungeons Master's Guide with a few specific magic item exceptions, there are only three common magic items that exist and that's it. So obviously if you can have five total, the source has to come from someplace else and that is adventure specific. They'll have a common magic item, and a lot of times adventure writers will create a common magic item for that adventure that you can then keep with you. Right, so I, I, as an example, I doubt you'll be able to get a deck of many things, given that this needs to be structured play, right? Oh, absolutely. Deck of many things is, and has always been, on the list of, these don't have a place in Adventures League because they break the game. So what happens when there's a magic item that's in a hardcover adventure that they have noted in sort of just general talk about the adventure is a bit powerful. For example, the Scroll of Tarask Summoning from Rhyme of the Frost Maiden. So the Scroll of Tarask Summoning has a couple factors here. It is a consumable item, um, which means once it's consumed, it can no longer be used and carried with you. And the other piece is mm -hmm. it stays in Rhyme of the Frost Maiden. So with your magic items, you have a list of magic items that your character has, and then each time you join a game, you choose from your list of gathered magic items what you are bringing into this particular session. And depending on what you're playing, the approved list will change. So if you enter another Rhyme of the Frostmaiden game, that item is available, but I believe that one is a um, one-per-party item. The other common example that comes up is the Sun Sword in Curse of Strahd, which is... Yes, that was going to be another question. Which is only available in Curse of Strahd, and it, you can only use it if you fit all of the criteria, and then once you're no longer playing Curse of Strahd, you don't get access to use the Sun Sword. Okay, so you mentioned that the tiers of play are split into 1, 2, 3, and 4, which correspond, roughly speaking, to every five levels. How does one go about leveling up? Is it milestone? Is it worked out through Eldritch runes? Like, what's the system? Is it just completing the adventure? Yes, it is just completing the adventure. It used to be a much more complicated system that didn't make as much sense. But anytime you complete a session, which is either a two-hour gameplay session or a four-hour gameplay session, depending on the module, um, you have the choice to level up. You don't have to level up, you can stay at your current level so that you can continue to play in games of that level. But at the end of every session, if your character survived the session, um, you have the choice to level up. So what happens if the session goes longer than four hours? It still counts as one session. Okay, the way that you said that made it sound like four hours was the time cap. So I was curious if it got split across multiple sessions or not? Doesn't. With a hardcover, it works a little bit more loosely, but with um, pre-written modules, they're written as two-hour modules or as four-hour modules. Um, and most of them come okay. with uh, suggestion for how to lengthen or shorten as needed. Okay. I was also going to say, because a lot of the hardcover modules, particularly the newer ones, have like milestones built in where they say at this point the characters should level up to level whatever. And those tend to line up more or less with four hours of play. Um, part of the thing about Adventures League that is different from your 
kitchen table D&D is there tends to be less sidetracking because everyone knows that we're playing a pre-made adventure. So Mm -hmm. there's a bit more of the buy-in of, I'm an adventurer here, I am here to play in this particular small sandbox. So just running with a comment that you mentioned previously, which was, if your character survives, you level up. What happens if your character doesn't survive? If your character doesn't survive and is not resurrected before the end of the session, um, the next time you play, you can bring that character back. They just do not gain any experience beyond the point that they died. So if any magic items were earned after their death, they don't get access to those magic items. If um, they didn't complete more than half the adventure, they don't level up. But um, there's no permadeath in Adventures League anymore. Um, Your character is available again the next time you play. It'll just be slower leveling. You may have to repeat sections, etc. Yes, um, it would be... If you were playing in a hardcover adventure, um, the DM may ask you to bring a different character just for story continuity, but that is a request that the DM can make, but not really something they can require. And I think one reason they changed the rules to this is people would literally just bring black bring people would literally just bring back clones of their character and change one letter of their name, and now they're all right. Uh, So we did have some questions from the listeners. So one of the first ones, which was actually also a question that I was uh, thinking about, how are the high-level characters handled? Uh, So part of that in home games, I've played in a couple of campaigns when characters get to very high levels and things... It can get tricky because of the amount of power the characters hold. Now, I know that a lot of the official adventures don't really go into levels above 14. So do any of the Adventures League games go that high? And if so, how are they run? There are some that go that high, but most modules are not written at that level. It's increasingly more difficult to find modules that go through 11 through 16, and then it is rare for 17 through 20. I have run one and played in one other that were level 18, 19, or 20. And the and typically when you get to that high of a level in Adventures League, you've played quite a bit. Um, and those games tend to be people who have been playing D&D for a long time, because most other people you'll find will just bring back another character at one of the lower levels because those games are more common to find you'll find a level 20 adventure once a quarter, once a year even, and it because a DM has to sit down and say, I want to run this adventure. And for all of the reasons that exist, that is less common than a new DM saying, oh, I want to try my hand at this and picking up a level one adventure. All right, so if you have an adventure that's running over a longer period of time, do... The Adventures League rules handle downtime. I mean, I know in some of the written adventures, they have segments or sections where there's extended periods where the characters might do sort of non-adventuring stuff. Like, for example, the uh, Waterdeep Dragon heist, the characters get or can get an inn that they can manage. So... How is downtime handled in Adventures League, or is it sort of hand-waved off and said, we really don't want to deal with that? Downtime in Adventures League is different than the extended downtime rules you have in Xanathar's Guide of Everything. After each session, each character is awarded 10 downtime days to spend, um, but they can only spend it doing the activities that are listed in downtime activities from the player's handbook with a few additional ones from Xanathar's, but the ones from Xanathar's are actually rewritten in the Adventures League um, rules. They don't include all of the mishaps or spectacular successes or things like that. It, it is basically you're wanting to uh, spend downtime days gaining a level or copying a spell or brewing potions or scribing scrolls, and they have very specific it costs you five downtime days to brew a potion. It costs you five downtime days to scribe a scroll. 
And if you'll remember, you can have five consumables on your character at levels one through four. So you can spend two of your, you can spend 10 of your downtime days creating two consumables for you to take in to your next session if you choose to. The other thing downtime days are spent on is trading magic items. So to trade a magic item that you got in this, um, to trade a magic item that you got in a previous session, you can spend five of your downtime days and the person you're trading it to spends five of their downtime days and then you swap magic items. So if you already have a bag of holding and you find another one and the other person doesn't have a bag of holding, but they have Cloak of Elvenkind, you can each spend five of your downtime days and now you've swapped your items. And that is tracked on your log sheet. So you know I had this item, now I no longer have this item. So I apologize, this is a tangential question, and I apologize if it came up earlier, but what if you want to just flat out get rid of one? You can actually sell um, common items for gold if you want them, but with magic items, you, you keep them on your list, you just don't take them into the session. So there's this mystical space that sits out here that these are magic items I found that don't necessarily go into a session with you. So you don't have to wait until you can get rid of an item in order to get another one that you want and use it. The one you don't want is just sitting out there in limbo as if it doesn't exist for each individual session. You don't use it. Just throw it in the lake. That's the other option. Yeah, some, some lady will find it eventually. Yeah. And then hand it out, and uh, personally, that sounds like a great basis for a form of government. <laughs> so, going back to Adventurers League, um, obviously we've got the upcoming book, Radiant Citadel. I believe the Adventurers League is going into Season 12 on the 11th, and the book is releasing the following day on the 12th. Given that there are so many hardcovers now, and that they've recently gotten rid of, effectively, Mordenkainen's Term of Foes and Volo's Guide to Monsters, and combined it sort of into Monsters of the Multiverse, are you allowed to use that as a source now for your characters and races? And what happens if you've got an established character that was already created under the older system? So yes, you are allowed to use the uh, Morningkainen Presents Mos Monsters of the Multiverse for your um, character creation. Um, the restriction there is the same as the restriction that was in Season 11, is that you can only use non-optional rules found in those, um, in those particular sources. Um, there are also some optional rules from other books that you can pull in, such as you can still use the variant human, um, you can use the optional class fe features from Tasha's. Um, so if you have a character that was built using previous rules that are no longer available, there is actually a an adaptation guide um, that they created in order to identify and address specific um concerns in order to move you from one season to the other. Some things are okay, some things are not, and if you've accessed that adaptation guide, if you have features from a previous um, no longer used source, you'll find out whether you can use that particular feature or not. But that only exists for characters that already exist in Adventures League. And so speaking of uh, Season 12, they've recently put out the latest... Uh... PDF, FAQ, quick guidance, bundle type thing, which doesn't go live until the 11th, but what are the main differences between Season 11 and Season 12 for anybody who is in the Adventurers League at this point? Or, alternatively, if anybody wishes to join Adventurers League at this point? Between Season 11 and Season 12, there are not really significant differences. Um, the biggest ones are the removal of Volos and Mordenkainen's, and the addition of um, approvals for things from Monsters of the Multiverse, and even Spelljammer is on this list, even though that's not expected until August. Um, a couple of the things they changed are some wording and language around um, adventure and session that may have been changed in order to remove some confusion, um, because people think of a hardcover adventure as a whole adventure, and in, in Adventures League, the session of play that you play, you get the adventure rewards per session. So there's just some language changes. They didn't really change any rules there either. Um, it's just they clarified some things from Season 11 to Season 12. All right, and we've had a, a last-minute listener question, which I'm going to let Ostron handle, because he's done such a good job so far. 
Right, so this one is simple on the surface, I guess. Why are they called seasons? That is a very good question, and I don't know that I've actually seen the answer anywhere other than one fades out and the other fades in, so it's a transition from one season to the next. It tends to be annually that the seasons change for Adventures League, but it's... I don't know that I've actually seen the official answer for why they're called seasons, but... Yeah, I was going to ask, is there a... uh, Let me start that over. So, is there an official length of time that the seasons last, or is it sort of release to release, and depending on how quickly those happen is how long the seasons are? More the latter. It tends to be a new season starts when the new summer hardcover adventure is released, whether that's in July or August if it got delayed, or if it got early some year, maybe in May. It might have been happened earlier, but they last about a year between the hardcover adventure releases from Wizards. So with Adventures League, and especially now that people are getting more into their local gaming stores, there's probably a game nearby you. So if you don't have a group yet, my current gaming group I met at Adventures League, um, and we were working through um, Waterdeep Dragon Heist together, and we are still playing years later um, because I eventually found a group of people that I really enjoyed playing with, and there are hundreds, countless stories of that same thing happening. You go to meet people and meet their playstyles without having to do a lot of pre-social work, and then at the table you get to know each other, you find the people you like to play with, and you invite them to your kitchen table game, and oftentimes you end up back at the Adventures League the next week together anyway. So it is a great place to find people if you don't already have people to play with. All right, well, thank you for coming on and talking about all things Adventures League with us. Um, if any listeners have any questions at all, uh, I'm volunteering Indigo. He will answer them. So feel free to drop by our Discord, hang out there anytime. Uh, you will get your questions answered. But now that we're caught up with the latest D&D news, let's take a short rest and head into the Gnomish Workshop to analyze the attack. The hosts will now analyze one of the most basic elements of D&D, the attack. It has been noted that I was not consulted in this endeavor. Post-hypnotic spells will now be enhanced. Hey, Ostron. What you working on? Ah, why do you keep asking him that? Because I'd like to know in advance if that stupid machine is going to turn on. Hmm? Oh, attacks. Oh, okay. Nothing to do with me, then. Why not? I mean, I'm a warlock now. I don't make attacks. Yes, you do. No, I don't. I cast Eldritch Blast. Still an attack. It is not. I'm afraid it is. No, it's really not. It quite certainly is. It's like force bolts out of the finger that is a type of magic. It is not an attack. It quite definitely is an attack. Okay, cool it. Um, Will the researcher doing clear up this little spat you guys are having? Probably. Here's my notes so far. Okay, let's take a look at this then. What have we got here? At face value, an attack in D&D would seem to be very simple. There is a creature and another creature they either don't get along with or would very much like to eat. Sometimes it's both, like with Knowles. Fortunately, and somewhat unusually, the rules for D&D 5th edition are also fairly simple, at least to start. When describing combat in the player's handbook, it states, If you're making an attack roll, you're making an attack. That means that any spell requiring a roll to hit rather than the target making a save counts as an attack. (sighs) Okay, fine, 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 whatever. Uh, What's all of this about then? Well, things get messy pretty quickly. In a world of absolute simplicity, that would be the end of the discussion. Unfortunately, various spells, effects, abilities, and other things use attacking as a trigger, and some of them are more specific about the details. In general, after you determine something is an attack, you have to figure out the attack's basic characteristics. Those are determined by what I call the basis of the attack and the range of the attack. The basis of the attack can either be a spell or a weapon, and the range can be melee or ranged. There are also unarmed attacks, which are their own special category. Again, those usually don't matter, but if you're casting a spell or have an ability that triggers on an attack, most of the time it won't simply be when a character is making an attack. 
For example, my ability to sneak attack as a rogue is dependent on me using a weapon. So if Lennon gets me absolutely wasted and convinces me to take over his Warlock Pact, I could not use my sneak attack on Eldritch Blast because it's a spell attack, not a weapon attack. Wait, would that work? The notes just said no. No, 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 no. Not the Eldritch Blast thing. The drinking and the taking over the pact and... Do you really want to see what Katie will do when she finds out? I, um, no. Moving on then. Relatedly, the magic item Wand of the War Mage grants a plus one to spell attack rolls, so even if I got my hands on one, it wouldn't help me throwing my knives. Now, note that whether an attack is a spell attack or a weapon attack has no bearing on whether the attack is magical. If someone casts a spell using a thundering smite or holy weapon on a character as they're making an attack, the attack is still a weapon attack, it's just a weapon attack that counts as magical for beating demon resistances and such. That covers the basic definitions, but as always, you have some special cases and exceptions. The first one is those unarmed strikes that we mentioned earlier. Unarmed strikes do not count as weapon attacks, and they cannot be ranged attacks. Unless you're a warforged. Maybe. But then if the warforge detaches their arm, it's still their body, so... like, Please focus. Okay, sorry. <clears throat> The upside is that you are always considered proficient with unarmed strikes, so apparently even the terminally clumsy are just good to go. However, if you've got an ability or spell that triggers on a melee weapon attack, unarmed strikes do not cut it. That eliminates sneak attack, all of the smite abilities and spells, and a few other things like booming blade. People who play monks regularly will be familiar with this distinction because it's really easy for them to accidentally lose half of their class bonus in a bar fight. As soon as they go to smash a beer bottle over someone's head, that's an improvised weapon. All the damage bonuses and such go right out the window since that and many of their abilities are based specifically on unarmed strikes. However, this is where the exceptions come in and why you should pay very close attention to what species the paladin is before assuming you're fine as long as you've taken their sword away. Several races in D&D have so-called natural weapons. None of the main races from the player's handbook fall into this category, but most of the ones in Monster to the Multiverse do. Tabaxi, Shifters, and Tortles are just a few of them. Most of them aren't called natural weapons, they're specified as claws or horns, but all of them have the same wording. Quote, you have blank, which you can use to make unarmed strikes. Up to this point, those natural weapons have also counted as weapons, which means an attack made with them counts as both an unarmed strike and a weapon attack. I'll let all the power gamers figure out how that can be useful. The next thing to touch on is the other stuff you can do with your attacks. Now, note these aren't other actions you can take. These are things that can replace your attacks. First off, more definitions to clear things up. Maybe. An attack action and an attack are not the same thing. An attack is always one roll to determine if an attack hit or missed. Advantage or disadvantage still counts as one roll because theoretically you're rolling both dice at the same time. An attack action, however, is when you expend a character's action to make whatever number of attacks they're allowed. So one attack action can have multiple attacks. That mostly comes into play if you have a hugger in your group. The rules for grappling say you can use the attack action to make a special melee attack, a grapple. If you're able to make multiple attacks with the attack action, this attack replaces one of them. The wording on that seemed a little contradictory in the minds of most people, so several sage advices have clarified this. First of all, if you are grappling, you do not necessarily sacrifice your entire attack action to do it. Ryu would, because she only has one attack. It's a very effective attack, though. Yeah, yeah, no one's debating that, but when you're going for a cuddle with Peaches, you can't attack because rogues only have one attack action. On the other hand, when I was a ranger, I could give Ostron a nice side hug and still stab the charging minotaur all in the same action. That's because the official ruling is the grapple attempt only replaces one of the attack if a creature has multiples. So if you're a fighter with three attacks going for you, you can make a grapple and two attacks, two grapples and an attack, or just go for the full cuddle fest and use all three. Do remember though that when you are trying a grapple, you automatically release whoever else you're grappling. So if you succeed on the first one, don't keep trying. 
Also, the same thing applies to shoves, so if you're concerned because the enemy is 10 feet away from the 100 foot cliff, just have the barbarian do it. They can shove twice as long as they're over level 5. Note that the separation between attacks and attack action also applies to spellcasters. So far there are no equivalent mechanics that take the place of a spell attack the way grappling or shoving do for a weapon attack. But the distinction between the action of casting the spell and making the attack rolls for it applies when considering advantage and disadvantage. For that, you'll want to carefully consider the spell involved. For example, if Lennon is suffering from vicious mockery... Yeah, oh, I mean, when aren't I? That is a constant around it. He meant the spell, not, you know, what we normally do. Oh, <laughs> carry on. Anyway, if Lennon is hit with vicious mockery and then decides to cast Eldritch Blast, the disadvantage is only applied to his next attack roll. Since he's a high enough level that Eldritch Blast has multiple bolts now, it's only the first roll he has to worry about. Woohoo! Unfortunately, that also applies to advantage. If Lennon has advantage on an attack roll and goes with Eldritch Blast, it's only the first roll that has it, not all of them. Oh! As a side note, if you're anywhere near a wild magic sorcerer who says they want to give themselves advantage when they upcast Scorching Ray, just run. They've got between 4 and 11 attack rolls to make, and if they want advantage on all of them, the whole area is just going to be fog clouds of exploding flumps. A final note on offhand attacks, discounting feats and special weapons, if a character has a light weapon in their offhand, they can use their bonus action to make an attack with it. That's one attack, so extra attacks do not affect your offhand attack in any way. However, that would count as a weapon attack so any triggers and abilities based on it still work. But it's an attack that does not use the attack action. So before, when we said you can substitute attacks with grapples, not applicable to offhand attacks. Even if you only need one arm for the side hug, like Lennon. Yeah, it gets uncomfortable sometimes. You know you can resist those grapples. <laughs> nope. I've still got my ranger attribute array. That is a plus five to athletics. Thank you. Oh... And you're... Negative two. Ah. With disadvantage. How... Why do you have disadvantage on athletic checks? I don't want to talk about it. On the other hand, I bet the Scrankle has a bunch of things we can talk about, so why don't we head over there? After a group hug. Remember how we just talked about sneak attack? Group hug means I've got an ally within five feet of you. Just... maybe just the Scrankle then. Fine. The final portion of the broadcast shall collate and analyze materials submitted by ingesters of previous audio and product. Last time we asked you, the listeners out there in the multiverse, what are your impressions of the introduction to the Radiant Citadel? Did it meet your expectations? Were any of your reservations or fears realized? And the introductory chapter mentions 12 lost civilizations. Do you think you know what any of them are? Do you have plans to introduce one? What will that look like? Rebel on Discord wrote in to say, Good show! Now there's a concept for a Stargate-esque quest. The party need to murder Hobo their way around a region to assemble the equivalent of a DHD-type thing to get back to the Citadel. 7435 on Discord says, The more I hear about the Radiant Citadel, the more excited I get about it. There are so many ways to bring about a great campaign with the pieces they've given us already. Being a planescape-jumping team of thieves, Ocean's Eleven style, that uses the Citadel as their base. No one can get to them if they make it to the Crystal. What about a storyline exploring the ethics of being neutral and not using all of the Citadel's power to help one side in a conflict of good people being driven from their lands by brutal invaders? He continues on to say, what about an autonomous intelligence and defense organization that carries out covert operations for the Citadel? Even Star Trek's Utopia had need of a Section 31 organization. What if the Radiant Citadel's Utopia is built on the ashes of a dark secret? What if the 12 missing civilizations had a different vision than the others? Was there a war that has been hidden, or were they forced to leave? I know that these don't line up with what most think of as a utopia setting, but I prefer to see the Radiant Citadel as a place of peace and calm, like the surface of a great body of water. It's a great place to take a break or just rest. Just keep in mind that there are great currents moving under the surface, and if you stare into the dark depths, you might just find something looking back out at you. Demosthenes wrote in on Twitter to say, I struggled to suspend my disbelief as the Radiant Citadel was described. The references to Utopian Star Trek didn't help. Right, so just for reference 743E5, if there's this place called the DM's Guild, 
And if you post <laughs> yes. all the stuff like that there, you can actually oh, get yes. people to pay you for those ideas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. write it down. Uh, I'd I'd play in some of those absolutely. Um, also, just for reference, for those who aren't Stargate fans, uh, Rebel was saying a DHD stands for Dial Home Device. So basically, what Rebel is saying is use the Concord jewels to go to a far off distant land, explore around, and then eventually have to murder Hobo your way back to the. I was going to say to the gate, <laughs> to the Concord <laughs> jewel to find the dial home device in order to get the jewel moving again. I liked the idea of the, like, maybe they weren't lost civilizations. Maybe they were the losers in the war that nobody talks mm -hmm. about anymore. I think that's why they left it kind of open-ended, though, because I think that they want to make it this utopian setting, but I think they also recognize that some people do need the sort of, um, I don't want to say darker hooks, because that's really not correct, but, you know, places like Baldur's Gate are popular for a reason. Like, some people need or prefer that kind of seedy underbelly gameplay in their games. Right, I just like that there's an option in this where there wasn't before. Yes. Because like, and I hate to keep using the analogy, but it's the easiest one to go to with Star Trek. If you want the utopian federation that is just reaching out to help people all the time of various different problems, you go with the next generation's incarnation. If you want a more flawed federation that itself has problems that need to be fixed and that start bubbling up, you start watching Deep Space Nine or Picard or something like that. But the fact that there is the option of going one or the other, as opposed to Baldur's Gate, which is more like the reimagined Battlestar Galactica of things are not great, they've never been great, they're not getting better, and you have to deal with that on top of whatever else is going on. Yeah, and I think that the Radiant Citadel, like you said, gives you options no matter which way you want to play it. Also kind of has a little bit of DS9 in there if you think about it. And that brings us to this week's community questions. If you were introduced to D&D in your younger years, what was your on-ramp? Did you play a linked board game, a modified TTRPG system, or just jump right into the deep end? Did your younger brother say, Hey, Ostron, you're DMing this, right? Ever played in an Adventurers League? If not, why not? And what's the wildest wild magic mishap you've been present for? Details on how you can get in touch coming up next. And so this brings us to the end of the 217th entry into our Chronicle. We'll be back with our 218th entry on July 20th. But before we go, we want to know, for you, dear listener, how was the show? You can comment on this show's post on our website, heroesrisepodcast.com. You can find us on all good social media at Heroes Rise D&D. You can email us, sendingstone at heroesrisepodcast.com, or you can chat with us live and join the Heroes Rise community at discord.heroesrisepodcast.com. This show isn't just a one-way conversation, and we always love to hear from you. So take a minute and tell us your thoughts. Make sure that you're never caught in the middle of a quest without us by subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and anywhere else that good podcasts can be found, or through our feed at feeds.heroesrisepodcast.com. And if you like the sound of what we do, there are many ways that you can help support us. Heroes Rise is an official Dice Envy affiliate. Get yourself some incredibly awesome dice that will not only make you the envy of your table, but will also help your favourite D&D podcast. Just use our affiliate link, heroesrisepodcast.com slash diceenvy, and be sure to enter the code HEROESRISE at checkout and save yourself an extra 10%. You can also help support the show by subscribing to our Patreon. Tiers start from $4 per month and give you live recordings of the show before the Wednesday release, Heroes Rise t-shirts, pins, and a super secret patron lounge on our Discord server. Plus, occasionally, you might get dragged into a recording or two for some dissonant whispers. Lucky you! To become a patron, just head on over to patreon.com slash heroesrisednd. And if a financial donation isn't your thing, that's cool too. Every time you share our show with friends, family, or your friendly local gaming stores, you help our audience grow, and that's ultimately why we do this. Thanks for all your likes, shares, and retweets. We want to take a moment to thank our social media mage Ray Ray, our Conjuration Cabal Bloodlake, Indigo Spectre, and Gath Memvar, and our audio alchemists Mikey, Branwyn, and Tomosthenes. Special thanks go to our halfling moneylenders Mardi Chidoric, The Despoiler, The Hobbyist, Randall Evans, Brewhammer, The Sobby, Rat Queen, Amber Squirrel Craning, Strife, Cordron, Daft Kronk, The Record Spinning Economy, 
the shadow known only as Azeroth, and our newest patron, that one guy. Vinsfept, for all the awesome music you've heard throughout the show, be sure to check him out at vinsfept.bandcamp.com, and Lo of Lowe's Lair, the designer of our banners and avatars. You can find him on Twitter at Lowe's underscore Lair, and Facebook at facebook.com slash Lowe's Lair. But above all, we want to thank all of you for tuning in and listening to our tales this evening. And until our paths shall cross again, fare thee well, brave adventurers. Rebel on Discord wrote in to say, good show. Now there's a concept for a Stargate-esque quest. Uh, no, that was the wrong inflection. Rebel wrote in on Dose... Cold. Yeah. Dose Cold. Whatever your thoughts or feelings, let us know. You can comment on this show's post on your on your website. <laughs> no, don't do that. <laughs> I mean, you're welcome to. We will never see it. <laughs> we have a hard enough time seeing on it on our, our own, own website. Yeah. <laughs> For those of you that have just joined us in the recording booth, we're just being quiet because Indigo's looking up a rule and this bit will get cut and nobody needs to know that we've had this discussion. Also, hi, Cauldron. Hi, Strife. Hi, Squirrel. Hi, Vecna's fanny pack. I probably shouldn't have whispered it quite like that, but, you know, got to keep the viewers somehow. <laughs> well, usually I'm the one looking up a rule and my keyboard provides the... <laughs> was my impression of your keyboard, by the way. I, I'm just laughing at uh, you. Were, you whispered the word "fanny," so <laughs> you've just been reading those books again. <laughs> Such as the Green World setting from I'm sorry, Green World, Greenwold. Unlike Gloomhaven, it's not so complicated that it needs an 82-page rule bit r- rule bake. Yeah. People who play monks regularly will be. F- <laughs> Even if you only need one arm for. Th- even if you only need one arm for si- for the... <laughs> Come on, you can do it. <laughs> Special thanks go to our halfling moneylenders, Marty Chidori. <laughs>